Good afternoon. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Vareshwar Kurma. Dr. Kurma is a postdoctoral research associate in the Department of Computer Science at Purdue University. Uh, Vareshwar earned his bachelor degree in electrical engineering at Indian Institute of Technology, Delhi, in 2009, and his PhD degree in computer engineering at Virginia Tech in, two, uh, in 2016. He was the recipient of the Outstanding PhD Student Award by the Center for Embedded Systems for Critical Applications at Virginia Tech. He also had a short stint as a project assistant in the Department of Electrical Com Communication Engineering at the Indian Institute of Science in 2010. His research interests include discovering and mitigating security vulnerabilities in the communication protocols employed in cyber-physical systems including smart home, smart transportation, and a smart city. Vorosa's research um, has featured in top-tier security venues, including ACM conferences on computer and communication security, CCS, and IEEE transactions on information forensics and security, TIFFs. He also served on the TPC of flagship conferences, including IEEE conferences on communications and network security, CNS, and IEEE International Symposium on Dynamic Spectrum Access Network, DICEPAN. So with further, uh, without further ado, let's welcome Dr. Kume. Yeah, thank you for the very nice and very long introduction. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah. So uh, I'm very glad to be here, and um, uh, let's uh, look into some of the security issues that we encounter in current vehicles, and that we are going to encounter in next generation vehicles as well. So, uh, what is? Uh, I guess uh, let me first start with a question. So, what is the first thing that uh, comes to your mind when you think of an autonomous vehicle? So can somebody just uh, tell me what is the first thing? And please feel free to stop me in between and then uh, ask questions. Safety. Safety, okay, that's very nice. Yeah, that is very nice as well. Yeah. So yes, so those are the things uh, that uh, come to your mind uh, when you first hear about an autonomous vehicle. So the, a few of the things uh, that I would like to formally put some of the advantages of these connected autonomous vehicles are driverless travel, traffic management, and minimizing accidents. So these are the numbers uh, from India. So in top four cities in India, if uh, you go outside with your car, you will spend around 45 minutes driving from your home to your office location. And also you will spend another 30 minutes in traffic jams. But the most important number here is the number of uh, accidents and the number of deaths that happen. So in India, more than 100,000 deaths uh, occur every year, which translates to 275 deaths per day. So it is very important that we develop uh, a smart transportation system which takes care of uh, uh, the faults that uh, drivers make on the road. Okay. So the idea of connected uh, and autonomous vehicles has two components. So the first component is the autonomous component. So the autonomous component means that the onboard sensors on a vehicle, for instance, uh, the cameras, the leaders, they make decisions by sensing their environment. So the autonomous component is just an in-vehicular uh, 
component where uh, you have these nodes which are called electronic control units which control each of the components of your vehicle. So one electronic component uh, controls uh, the brake, one another electronic component uh, controls your steering and similarly there are around hundreds of electronic uh, control units in your car these days. But all these uh, electronic uh, control units communicate over this uh, network which is called controller area network, CAN. So by communicating over these, they make intelligent decisions. For instance, when you are actually using cruise control, the, your engine control uh, unit, uh, your uh, steering, your uh, brake, your uh, accelerator, all of them are talking to each other and making intelligent decisions. So that is the part of uh, the autonomous uh, uh, component uh, of uh, our architecture. Now let's move to the second component, which is the connected component. Now you, in order to make, uh, in order to enable a smart transportation, you need to make sure that the vehicles are talking to each other and the vehicles are also talking to infrastructure, which may include uh, traffic lights or other types of infrastructure. So uh, when these vehicles uh, talk to each other, they could make intelligent decisions in such a way. So for instance, uh, when you are using just a camera, the camera will have to detect uh, that the uh, vehicle in front of you has, is slowing down and then the camera could uh, instruct the vehicle to make uh, to enable uh, braking and then the, the vehicle which is behind the actually braking vehicle will be able to stop itself. But when you have this uh, vehicle to vehicle communication, the first vehicle even before, uh, going to, even before it is going to brake, it can tell this, uh, the vehicle which is behind it that it is going to brake and then the second vehicle could uh, also start braking. So it, it will be a very nice uh, way to have this connected uh, vehicle idea as well. So now the nodes in this connected vehicles idea are called onboard telematics units, OBUs. And the protocol that they utilize to communicate among themselves is called vehicle to everything V2X uh, communication protocol. Okay, so when we look uh, into the whole model of a connected autonomous vehicle, you can think of uh, it uh, as an OBU, which has these two modems. One is called a V2X modem, which is required for connection over a wireless network and uh, the different vehicles talk to each other through this V2X modem. And then the OBU is also connected to the in-vehicular network through this CAN modem, which is the controller area network modem. And then this CAN um, uh, uh, bus is actually a wired, uh, it is a wired protocol. These ECUs are following uh, this uh, wired protocol to communicate among themselves. And, and as I said, there could be a large number of ECUs which include body ECU or which controls the doors and other stuff. And you could also have brake or engine. Now, once we have this vehicle model, now what could go wrong here? So it is uh, very nice to think about the security threats that we could have in any system. But it is particularly important to think about uh, uh, these kind of things for a very safety critical system like a vehicle. Now, uh, most of uh, uh, researchers uh, here who are looking for uh, uh, the look, look into these uh, standard protocols, which could be a cellular protocol or which could be a Bluetooth protocol. And then we also have to look into this new generation V2X protocol, which will be, which will enable this vehicle to vehicle communication. Now, when these uh, uh, vehicles were designed, 
they were never designed to be connected to the outside world through these communication protocols. Because um, the controller area network or the idea of having electronic control units to control each individual unit in a vehicle, it came around 1990s when there was no concept that you could, you should be able to use your mobile phone to open or to lock or unlock your door or to start your engine, they, they, these concepts were not there. And therefore, in the design phase of these vehicles, they, the security was never considered. And then also, they, there are uh, uh, these resource constraints, which come, come because of these price issues. So these, because uh, each vehicle contains hundreds of units, the price of, it is very important for the vehicle manufacturers to keep the price of each unit very low. And therefore, the units uh, which are actually employed there have resource constraints in terms of energy and in terms of uh, the bandwidth uh, that they utilize to communicate with other uh, ECUs. Okay, but now we know that uh, it is possible to have bugs in these communication protocols. And once uh, an attacker finds a bug in these communication protocols, it can find a foothold inside the vehicular network. And once it finds the foothold inside the vehicle network, it can take complete control of the vehicle. Because as I said, there is no security that is built in inside the vehicle. The messages that are being communicated, they are communicated in plain text. And therefore, when the attacker takes uh, just that foothold, it will Able, it will be able to control your brakes, it will be able to control your uh, steering wheel, and it can do many other things, uh, very, very interesting things uh, uh, to your vehicle. Now, it is not that there is only one particular uh, manufacturer which could be affected by uh, these bugs. So, researchers have found a large variety of bugs in all different uh, top manufacturers uh, of vehicles, which include uh, Tesla as well. And so, uh, so in order to just illustrate what can happen when somebody gets into your vehicle, I would like to uh, show this uh, quick video in which uh, the attackers are able to do very interesting things. So uh, here you see uh, the attacker controlling uh, the steering wheel of a vehicle, the door lock and unlock feature, the RPM meters, the brakes. Yeah, so it can actually do many interesting things. And what the way they do did it was uh, that uh, they found a bug in the entertainment system that was installed on the vehicle. That entertainment system utilized a cellular connection and therefore the attackers were able to get into the vehicle wirelessly. So they exploited uh, the bug in the entertainment system to ensure that they have full control of the vehicle. Now, um, because of this vulnerability, in which was shown in 2015, Jeep had to recall 1.4 million cars and do the security patch for their entertainment system so that these, uh, uh, this security vulnerability could be mitigated. Now, um, uh, some of the uh, researchers in IBM, they actually went ahead uh, and analyzed what could be an impact of these kind of security bugs. So they found that if, uh, if these type of bugs were not mitigated during the design phase and, they, and the manufacturer would have to recall all these vehicles and then uh, mitigate them, 
it costs the, the vehicle manufacturer 1000 x more to do that and therefore, it is very important that we develop these uh, security mechanisms which prevent all these different types of attacks during the design phase of the vehicle. Okay, so now let me talk, uh, let me go into the technical detail uh, of my talk. So, I will go into two, so uh, we just looked into the two components of this connected uh, autonomous vehicle idea. So, I will go into these two different aspects and talk about the different attacks and possible defenses in those uh, um, uh, components. So, looking into the first component which is the autonomous component, we will look into an impersonation attack. And in this impersonation attack, we assume that the attacker has already gotten foothold into the vehicular network, which means that perhaps the OBU is already compromised. And now we will see what this uh, OBU, the compromised OBU can actually achieve. Okay. So, um, as we already said that this in vehicular network does not employ any kind of security, which means that it does not employ any encryption or authentication mechanism. Now, uh, so what would be the solution? So, the researchers have proposed that uh, how about we install an intrusion detection system on the bus which detects these different types of anomalies which uh, can occur because an attacker has started launches, launching some attack on the vehicle. So, the IDS will try to detect these anomalies and raise an alarm. Okay. But, um, yeah, so you uh, might realize that these IDSs are never perfect. So, you have you always have this cat and mouse game. So, the first uh, 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 attacks that were proposed were message impersonation attacks on the CAN bus and then people came up with these uh, anomalies that can occur in messages and detect those anomalies to uh, uh, come up uh, with an alarm system. Then this uh, race continued and currently we are uh, at this uh, stage where the state of the art intrusion detection system utilizes this voltage based fingerprinting technique. Now, uh, let us see what are these voltage fingerprinting based intrusion detection system. So, in uh, if you see um, an ECU, the architecture of an ECU, you will see that uh, when the ECU wants to send something on the bus, there is a very simple mechanism to do it. So, when the, the issue wants to send a bit 1 on the bus, it sends a volt uh, 0 on the bus and when it wants to send a bit 0 on the bus, it will send a, a value of voltage to be 2 volts. Now, uh, since this uh, mechanism is implemented in hardware and uh, hardware is actually a set of transistors and resistors, these things are never perfect. So, in, in, in inducing such voltages are never perfect. So, on the bus you will see these different uh, uh, fluctuations in the real value of the voltages. So, what the researchers did was they actually uh, found that these uh, voltages have a distribution and if we extract significant number of uh, features from these distributions, it is possible to differentiate between the senders. So, if uh, 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 an engine control unit is sending a message, it will have a particular distribution of voltage values. If the brake control unit uh, is sending a message, it will have a different distribution. And therefore, uh, the proposed mechanism was to train a machine learning algorithm with these features and then 
at the when it in the operation phase when uh, somebody sends a message you match the fingerprint of that message to the learned fingerprint and if they do not match you raise an alarm but uh, there is uh, an issue here so these uh, uh, voltage fingerprint based ids they require regular training because the voltage fingerprint can change with temperature because uh, when you have these resistors uh, and these transistors working they actually change their behavior at different temperatures and then that behavior also changes over time so when they get old their behavior changes therefore uh, this uh, regular retraining is required in these bits okay so now um, uh, let's see how these bits uh, these defense were evaluated in the prior art so in the prior art what they were doing when they were proposing these uh, defense mechanisms that uh, they considered uh, a victim so let's say the engine control unit is a victim here and then they said that okay we will have uh, a wits defense there and then they considered one uh, attacker so in this case let's say the telematics control unit is an attacker and now the what the attacker could do was the attacker could only heat itself or cool itself to change its voltage characteristics because the voltage characteristics are generated by the hardware of the vehicle so even if you are have compromised an attacker you cannot compromise its hardware and therefore uh, the voltage fingerprint cannot be changed but the attacker could just only try to heat or cool itself to change the voltage behavior but you see that the defense is actually using a machine learning algorithm and there is an asymmetry here so the defense is using the machine learning algorithm but uh, the attacker is very naive here so therefore uh, uh, we saw an opportunity to ensure that we can come up with a better attack that has been proposed in the prior literature so therefore we came up with uh, this uh, attack which uh, we call duet so this attack uh, requires two compromised ecus so we have hundreds of ecus uh, in a vehicle so we considered that let's have two compromised ecus so one could be the telematics control unit which has this cellular connection to the outside world and the other could be the vcim the vehicle communication interface module through which you use uh, your uh, mobile and you connect using the bluetooth so the bluetooth is actually controlled by this vcim so let's have these two compromised ecus in our attack model and then these two compromised ecus they would employ an adversarial machine learning technique to actually counter the machine learning based intrusion detection system so the specific uh, machine the adversarial machine learning technique that we utilized is uh, called training set poisoning and let's see how that works so this is uh, again uh, revisiting uh, the same concept that different ecus will have different voltage characteristics and they will have different uh, voltage distributions so here i have uh, enumerated them the three ecus as victim attacker and accomplice so now in this case if the attacker wants to impersonate uh, the victim because their distributions are different the wits will detect uh, that impersonation attempt but uh, now what we will do is we will try to bypass the wits but here uh, one important thing to note here is that uh, these uh, all three of them have this unimodal gaussian distribution 
which means that uh, they have uh, uh, some variance around just one mean. The voltage values have some variance around that one mean. Okay. So, what we will do in the training phase of the WIDS is that uh, now the attacker will start transmitting simultaneously with the victim and it will corrupt some of the voltage samples that are being transmitted by the victim. So, when it actually corrupts some of the uh, uh, samples that are being corrupted by uh, that are being transmitted by the victim, it will lead to a bimodal distribution, which means that now you there are two means, one is uh, corresponding to the benign samples and the other one is uh, the superimposed uh, samples which are called corrupted samples here. So, since the superimposed samples will have a higher voltage values because of the superposition, you will see a bimodal distribution when you see the voltage characteristics of the victim. Now, in the training phase, the WIDS is now learning from this bimodal distribution. Okay, so, what is the next step then? So, now in the test phase, which is the operation phase uh, of the WIDS, what we will do is, now the accomplice and the attacker, they start transmitting together. So, the message that is being forged, it now contains the finger uh, fingerprint or the voltage uh, samples corresponding to this attacker plus accomplice. Now, again you see that because there are two ECUs transmitting together and they are superimposing their voltage samples, you will again see a bimodal distribution, which means that, uh, so in the training phase, we have tricked the WIDs to consider any bimodal distribution as the victim. And therefore, in the test phase, if it the WIDs sees a bimodal distribution, it will classify it as coming from the victim. And therefore, the accomplice plus attacker is classified as coming from the victim. And therefore, we have successfully um, bypassed uh, the WIDs detection mechanism. Now, uh, you will notice that uh, in order to do this, in order to uh, do this simultaneous transmission, there are some challenges. So, the first challenge is to do time synchronization, which means that you, the attacker should be able to transmit at the same time as the victim. And um, in order to do that, what we do is, we track uh, the victim's periodic transmission. So, the victim, the, all the ECUs on the CAN bus, including the victim, they transmit messages periodically on the bus. And therefore, if we could carefully track these uh, messages, we will be able to uh, ensure that the attacker could transmit simultaneously with the victim. And then the second challenge was to superimpose some of the voltage samples. And for that, you need to guess what would be the payload in the victim's message. So, here that we call as payload synchronization. So, we notice that uh, on the CAN bus, these mes the messages on the CAN bus, they have some counters, they have some multi-valued numbers which could be easily guessed and they also have some sensor data which uh, do not change for a very long time. So, for instance, uh, many of the things, uh, so the status uh, of the gear, the status of uh, the door, they do not change for a very long time unless you make, in, unless the uh, user or the driver makes some action on the uh, on those things. So, therefore, we found that it is able to predict the payload of the next message by seeing the current message of the victim and therefore, we were able to do this payload synchronization as well. 
So, uh, in order to do this payload synchronization, we came up with this uh, idea of uh, predicting these uh, payloads and we found that we could do this prediction with very high accuracy. So, in this curve, uh, what I am showing is that, uh, so let me just get into the ex specific example. So, this curve shows uh, the cumulative number of messages in which you could predict certain number of bytes of uh, uh, from the victim's message. So, here you could on the y axis we have the number of messages and on the x axis you have the number of bytes. So, you could see that uh, when the total, so uh, the byte uh, 0 means the total number of messages that an ECU transmits. So, on the, so uh, for the red curve you see that uh, uh, the num out, out of 50 messages which uh, you could see on a particular vehicle, there were 45 messages where we could easily predict at least first two bytes of the data and therefore, an attacker could easily transmit simultaneously with those first two bytes and corrupt the voltage samples of the victim. Okay. Okay, so, now uh, this is uh, the final result that we have. So, we uh, actually conducted our uh, attack do it on a test bed consisting of these electronic uh, uh, units which were uh, emulated using Arduino boards and then we also conducted attacks on two real vehicles. One was Impala and the other one was Cruise and we achieved a very high success rate which is on the y axis on this curve and uh, on the x axis we have the length of the predictable payload prefix. So, which means that if we were able to corrupt more samples in the victim's message, we were able to achieve higher attack success rate. So, if uh, we were not able to corrupt anything in the victim's message, the attack success, attack success was very, very low. So, at max we were able to achieve at more than 80 percent uh, uh, success rate even in vehicles. And, um, an 80 percent success rate is good enough uh, for a very, for a masquerade attack on a cyber physical system. Okay, so, now uh, I would like to present uh, uh, an attack demo uh, which we uh, created uh, by attacking a real uh, vehicle. So, in this attack, our goal is to impersonate the RPM meter while evading the vids. So, the uh, first what we did was uh, we did some reverse engineering to find out what messages correspond to the engine RPM. So, here you see that the engine RPM is 700 devolutions per minute. Now, um, uh, these WITS algorithms they were implemented uh, in our laptop and um, we collected the voltage samples through the oscilloscope that you see here. So, in the first stage which is the training stage you see that nothing is changing we are corrupting the uh, voltage values of the victim, but the WITS is learning from those corrupted values and nothing is, you do not see any change here. But now, when the next attack phase starts, you see that the RPM raises to 7000 revolutions per minute. You could never reach that value in these cars. If you are, if you are driving a Formula 1 car, possibly you might reach that number, but in a real car you will never reach that. So, what we are doing is we are impersonating uh, uh, the engine and sending these fake messages, forged messages to the uh, this RPM meter and the RPM meter is accepting those values. And then we notice that uh, the WIDS does not raise any alarm because uh, we were able to do this, uh, successfully able to do this uh, adversarial machine learning approach of uh, training set poisoning. 
Okay, so that is the end of this uh, first part. Um, I would be happy to take uh, some questions here. Yes. Um, for remote attack surface, um, yes. I saw that for the wireless attack, it involved targeting the um, uh, like the single chip modem, yes. like the road link modems. Yes. Um, would there be a way to try to mitigate wireless attack surface by making that protocol authenticated um, to try to reduce that? Yeah, so definitely if you enable authentication, you should be able to do, uh, you should be able to reduce the attack surfaces. But uh, the argument here is uh, that you will always have some bugs in Bluetooth. You will always have some bugs in cellular protocol. We always uh, see researchers coming up with these bugs. And uh, once you have these bugs, no matter what type of authentication you have in these uh, vehicles, an attacker could always find a way to get into the vehicle. your <clears throat> testing framework. So what I want to ask you is that so basically, uh, basically as far as, uh, no, no. so in the vehicles, so typically, especially your target uh, vehicle, how many uh, issue there are? So, uh, so, in, uh, so in a Tesla, mm -hmm. you might see around 200 electronic 200? control units. Yes. So each okay. component of your vehicle is these days now being controlled by one electronic control unit. Okay. But in an old vehicle, mm -hmm. you would see a dozen electronic control units. So the vehicle on which we are working, it mm -hmm. has around a dozen electronic control units, the 2011 Impala. Uh, then probably I, I guess that some, some of the, at least some of the ECU component may have uh, some controller logic, like a PID control or whatever. There are, how many control logics are there probably? So uh, these are uh, not very complex uh, electronic mm. units. So mm. they have they have usually one MCU, mm. and um, then that MCU has one elect uh, one. Uh, the architecture of that MCU is very very simple. Mm. So uh, probably I would say. Um, so they have uh, so one uh, MCU can have. Uh, um, multiple chips, mm -hmm. and one of those chips could be a CAN controller, which uh, enables that MCU to communicate with this, uh, uh, with other uh, MCUs through this uh, CAN uh, bus. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so I guess um, that is the overall architecture of uh, an electronic uh, control unit that uh, you see in a vehicle. Uh, then just uh, my question is: How many? PID controls are there probably out of the that all the can can bus can know something like that. So I would not be able to mm. tell you the exact number, mm. um, but there should not be many PID controllers in the vehicle. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So I have a question. So once we find there is a vulnerability in the ECU, so what's the possible options to fix this or they are totally cannot be fixed? No, you can always do a firmware update. So that is what uh, uh, Jeep did. It recalled the vehicles 
okay. the firmware update to fix those. So that means we need to use some devices to connect the, the, the car and do the update. Yes. Okay. So for these vehicles, so now people are coming up with this idea of over-the-air update. So they could actually update the firmware of an ECU over the air. So they do not need to actually recall all the vehicles and then fix the vulnerability. Okay, I see. Yeah. Thanks. Okay. Okay, so now that you know that authentication is very important before getting access to a vehicle, now let's see an adversarial model, adversary model in which the attacker is actually trying to get into the vehicle. So the victim is now uh, the onboard unit and the attacker is trying to get into this onboard unit. So as uh, we just discussed uh, earlier, what we need is an authentication protocol here, which prevents this adversary to get into the vehicle. Okay. So uh, now let's first uh, talk about the need for these connected vehicles. So I would like to highlight uh, the need for these connected vehicles through this video which does not have, uh, yeah, so we don't have a way to hear this, but yeah, let me just stop it. So, um, 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 do you have a, um, uh, like a uh, earphone out jack on your, on your laptop? Yes. <laughs> no, it's fine. I could just t tell them it is fine. It is all right. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. No, that is fine. Uh, so um, uh, this uh, so um, this uh, in uh, this Tesla vehicle, it actually uh, rammed into a police car, which was stopped in the middle of a road. So what happened was. Uh, the Tesla vehicle did not, going at 60 miles per hour, did not expect any vehicle to be stopped in the middle of a road. And when it actually noticed a vehicle, although it tried to brake, but it could not brake and it went directly into that vehicle and uh, causing an accident. So now uh, what, uh, what, uh, what was wrong in this scenario? The issue was that uh, these sensors that you have uh, on a vehicle, they have limitations. So for instance, uh, the camera could only see for a particular distance. And in fog, probably the camera will not be able to see anything. So these uh, onboard sensors have limitations. And therefore, we need the concept of these connected vehicles so that these vehicles could talk to each other over a wireless medium and tell the status, uh, uh, tell their status to other vehicles. So for instance, in this case, the police car would have uh, broadcasted its information that it is stopped in the middle of a road. And if this uh, Tesla vehicle would have received that information one kilometer, uh, when it was one kilometer away from the vehicle, it would have made a better choice. So now, um, in order to enable this uh, idea of connected vehicles, the Society of Automotive Engineers, SAE, it has defined a set of basic safety messages. Now, these basic safety messages include uh, uh, broadcasting information about location, speed, acceleration. Uh, in some cases, you also be needed, the vehicle will be needed to broadcast uh, this forward collision warning, intersection movement assist. 
So, now these uh, so uh, particularly these uh, location speed and acceleration messages they are transmitted periodically over the air. So, the, uh, one of the standard uh, value of that period is 100 millisecond. Okay. So, now uh, let us see what, what properties we need for uh, this connected vehicles idea to be secure. So, the first uh, security property is that we need to validate those safety messages. So, if uh, a vehicle is receiving those safety messages about the location, about the speed of another vehicle, it should be able to authenticate those messages and therefore, authenticity is a criteria here. Now, we also need to provide privacy to the senders. So, these senders are actually broadcasting their private information about their location over the air. So, it is very important uh, for uh, any mechanism to ensure that this private information about the location cannot be exploited by an adversary to track the movement of the driver. Also, the information about uh, speed and acceleration they could be utilized to profile or fingerprint a driver. So, the driver does uh, it is very important that we provide this privacy to the driver and therefore, uh, the security property that we want here is privacy. And then uh, in a vehicular environment we also need uh, uh, this uh, property of revocability because uh, you may, may have many vehicles malfunctioning vehicles and there and you will need uh, them to not come on the road and therefore, you want to suspend the license of those vehicles and therefore, you need uh, this third property of revocability. But all these uh, three components can be provided by this uh, mechanism called uh, privacy preserving or anonymous authentication and one nice way to do it is called group signatures. So, uh, here I would uh, give you a very high level overview of uh, group signatures which was proposed uh, by uh, the researcher at Stanford named Dr. Dan Bonet. So, he is a cryptographer uh, who has developed many different types of uh, uh, signature schemes among them is uh, the group signature scheme which actually provides privacy preserving authentication. So, in this um, environment there are uh, three entities the first is called the group manager and as the name suggests it is responsible for generating the group public key. Now, uh, what is the need for generating this uh, group public key? So, the I, as uh, uh, the name suggests the group signatures, the anonymity here is in terms of the group which means that every sender will broadcast information saying that uh, I am part of a particular group and the receivers will verify that whether this signer is part of a particular group or not. But uh, the signers will never embed their own information or the, their own identity in the signatures. So, therefore, the larger the group, the signers privacy will be higher. So, the, verif uh, the verifier will not be able to know who is transmitting, it will only be able to know that someone from the group is transmitting the message. Okay, so, the group manager's uh, task is to generate is to set up the group by generating uh, the group public key and then uh, it will also assign secret keys to these signers. Then it is also responsible for publishing a revocation list which will contain uh, the information about uh, those whose licenses has been suspended. Now, the signers uh, task is very simple it has to just gen generate an anonymous signature of the 
over the message that it wants to broadcast and then the verifiers has verifiers has to do two things first is to ensure that uh, the signature is authentic so the message that it is receiving is authentic is determined based on uh, the authenticity of the signature and therefore uh, the verifier has to verify that and then the second task that the verifier has to do is to check the revocation status of the signer which means that the signer is not revoked okay now let's uh, look at the scale of the network that we are actually considering here so we um, um, and the uh, and the functions uh, that we are employing in these group signatures so uh, in this uh, group signature scheme one fundamental function was called a bilinear map operation and we ran that operation on an intel i7 uh, 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 processor based uh, computer and found that uh, it took 2 millisecond to run that bilinear operation bilinear map operation this implies that um, the uh, in the the verifier could only run 500 operations per second now the dilemma of the verifier is that the verifier does not know the identity of the signer and the revocation list does not contain the identity of the signers it actually contains the secret keys that were allotted to those signers and therefore when uh, the verifier receives a message it has to look to each entry in the revocation list see if that uh, secret key which is in the revocation list has been utilized to generate that signature or not and then move to the next entry in the revocation list which means that uh, the computation cost of the verifier is actually linear in terms of the size of the revocation list okay so now uh, you could see that a uh, verifier could only run these 500 operations so potentially the verifier could only check a revocation list of 500 entries now let's let's see uh, the scale of this network so now we consider a simple uh, scenario where you have a road with three lanes and two way highway and uh, you consider one vehicle uh, 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 in each uh, 50 meters so the distance between two vehicles is 50 meters in each lane and we consider this typical communication range of 1 kilometer and uh, we again consider the typical periodicity of 100 millisecond for the location and uh, the other information that each signer is broadcasting so this translates into 2400 vehicle uh, to everything communication messages per second so v2x messages per second okay and now let's uh, see the number of revoked vehicles so in us there are around 11 million uh, revoked uh, licenses currently now if we reduce that number to a vehicle uh, so uh, and we so the vehicles uh, will be malfunctioning but the that malfunctioning could come from the malfunctioning of the components of the vehicle or that malfunctioning could also come from the malfunctioning of the drivers and therefore we should uh, consider a conservative number so the conservative number that i consider here is 1000 revoked signers now this means that you need to run that uh, operation of bilinear map 2400 into 1000 times now you cannot bridge this gap between the capability and the requirement by using simple techniques uh, uh, which uh, 
uh, which you could employ to do parallelization or hardware acceleration. And therefore, uh, it is imperative that we develop a novel mechanism to uh, address this challenge. Okay. So, what we proposed was that rather than verifying the revocation status of a vehicle deterministically, how about we verify the revocation status probabilistically. So, now uh, you could uh, think of uh, the analogy with the Miller-Rabin primality testing algorithm, where uh, the primality of uh, a very large number, if you want to determine it uh, deterministically, it is very, very computationally expensive. But if you want to just use uh, the probabilistic algorithm proposed by Miller and Rabin, it is very, very efficient. Although that uh, efficient algorithm will not give you 100 percent accurate result, but still almost all systems in the current world, they utilize this probabilistic algorithm called the Miller-Rabin primality testing algorithm. Okay, so, our idea was uh, to have this group signatures with probabilistic revocation. So, the first contribution was uh, that we come up with this uh, idea of alias tokens which these signers could embed in their signatures. So, these signers cannot reveal their identity in the signatures, but what we wanted uh, to ensure that these signers reveal something in their signature and that we call alias token. So, now these alias tokens are given to these signers by the group manager and these signers now reveal this alias token, one alias token in each signature. Okay. Now, the second contribution is uh, uh, the signal processing part, where we check this, uh, uh, we, we utilize this alias token that has been embedded as part of the signature and come up with a probabilistic revocation check uh, mechanism. So, now when the group uh, manager revokes a signer, it actually revokes these alias tokens and now the verifier actually checks the revocation status of these alias tokens in order to check the revocation status of the signer. Okay, now, let us go into the details of these contributions. So, for this uh, embedded uh, alias token, um, so, uh, so what we did was we utilized the, the same fundamental operation which was called the bilinear map operation. Uh, I will not go into the details of uh, the function, but uh, you could see that it is a very simple operation. So, that uh, bilinear map operation E when conducted on two parameters u raised to the power a and v raised to the power b, it, uh, it is equal to the operation when it is implied on those two parameters u v raised to the power a b. So, this bilinear map operation is the fundamental operation which provides privacy to these signature algorithms. Okay, so, what these three things, three entities in our signature scheme do? So, for the first uh, step is to generate the group uh, secret key, which is the same here. Now, the second step is to generate these alias tokens. So, the group manager generates these alias tokens and assigns them to the signers. But the most important thing to do here is to generate the signer's secret key. And now, you see that uh, here uh, in this third step of the group manager, the signer's secret key is generated using all the alias tokens that has been assigned to the signer. So, the signer's uh, secret key is now related to the all of these alias token. Now, what the signer does is signer generates these other uh, parameters. 
some parameter b and some parameter c but the important point to note here is that the parameter b is generated by all the alias tokens that it has and the parameter c is generated by all alias tokens except the alias token which it wants to reveal in its signature now when it re, uh, generates a signature it uh, sends the information or the zero so what we call is zero knowledge proof of knowledge of these three parameters a b c and it reveals this uh, alias token xi as well and this verifier now checks uh, whether uh, the signer has a valid secret key so it runs the same bilinear operation which is called e uh, uh, and it uh, checks if the parameters a and b satisfy a particular equality or not and then again this uh, alias token is uh, 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 so the now the if we, now the verifier ensures that this alias token is actually cryptographically linked to the signature or not so it again uses the same bilinear map operation to check for this linkage of the alias token with the signature scheme okay now uh, the second aspect how we utilize these uh, alias tokens to actually do the revocation check mechanism so in three so for this we utilized uh, a very popular technique which is utilized in 3g communication so it was in the in 3g communication what happened was that uh, the users were allowed to transmit uh, at the same time and at the same frequency but when these all these uh, different senders transmit at the same time at the uh, same frequency it is difficult for the receivers to decode those signals so this concept of spreading codes was developed where these codes are utilized by these so different codes are utilized by different uh, senders and they code their signal using these different uh, spreading codes and when a particular receiver is interested in a particular transmitter it will use the same spreading code and then it will be able to extract that message from the overlapped signal and it will be able to know what the sender was transmitting over there although the sender is actually sharing the same spectrum and the same time with other senders as well so if you use the same spreading code if the sender uses the same spreading code and the receiver uses the same spreading code they could have this uh, communication of information okay but if they use different uh, spreading codes they will not be able to know what they have uh, what the sender has sent and uh, they will also not be able to know uh, anything about uh, that information so that there is a privacy component there as well okay so what we did here so what we did was we actually took these uh, alias tokens and mapped it to sp spreading codes and then when the revoke when the uh, group manager has to revoke these different uh, signers by revoking their alias tokens we revoked these spreading codes corresponding to those alias tokens and the way we revoked is is to generate a revocation code so rather than generating a revocation list now we generate a revocation code which is actually a sum of all these revocation codes so now you see that uh, the analogy of uh, sharing the same time and the same frequency uh, using the spreading code comes here that now you have what you have done is you have generated one code which is called revocation code here by summing up all these spreading codes which were revoked and now when this uh, uh, when a verifier has to actually check the revocation status of the signer by looking at an alias uh, token 
So, the, what the verifier can do is the verifier could map that alias token to a spreading code which is which we call here as alias code and then it could compute a correlation with the revocation code and this correlation value will lie between 0 and 1. So, the basic uh, thing here is that if the correlation is above a threshold which means that the alias code was encoded in the revocation code which implies that the signer was revoked and if uh, the value is uh, lower than that threshold implies that the signer was not revoked. So, this is uh, so this uh, uh, mechanism ensures that you are actually using a probabilistic mechanism to decide on the revocation status of a signer. Okay. So, using this uh, probabilistic mechanism uh, we were able to uh, uh, significantly reduce the computational cost uh, of the uh, group signature mechanism. So, here you see the blue curve which is the uh, curve for our group signatures with probabilistic revocation and uh, the red and the green curves are from the prior art and we see that we were able to significantly reduce this computational cost and make uh, our uh, scheme implementable in a standard vehicle to infrastructure communication network. So, you on the x axis we have the number of uh, revoked private keys and you see that even if the number of revoked private keys reaches uh, some number like 10,000 on the y axis we have the computational overhead in milliseconds. So, you are still uh, less than 100 millisecond. Uh, so, the verifier would take even less than 100 millisecond to verify each of those messages and uh, I will uh, remind you that 100 millisecond is the time when you receive a message. So, it is very important that you should be able to verify a message within 100 millisecond. Okay. So, uh, I would just conclude uh, here. Um, I already talked uh, about uh, the two components of this connected uh, autonomous vehicle. In the first part I talked uh, about this attack duet uh, which evaded the state of the art fingerprinting technique uh, that is employed by the intrusion detection system and the second part uh, I utilized uh, this idea of probabilistic revocation to come up with this scalable privacy preserving authentication mechanism for the V2X communication. Um, yeah, so, the goal uh, here is to actually come up with an end to end authentication mechanism and my even my current research uh, directions are uh, in to enable uh, this uh, smart and secure transmission by tra transportation by enabling this end to end authentication. That is the end of my talk and I will be happy to take more questions. Yes. Um, so, how, how yes. the threshold is uh, determined in the uh, verification? Yeah. So, uh, we uh, ran uh, uh, some simulations of uh, how many number of uh, revoked, how many number of revoked uh, signers if you have and you generate a revocation code and you do the same mechanism of uh, uh, setting up the threshold and uh, detecting the revocation status of the vehicle. So, we found that uh, in order to achieve, uh, so th these are all uh, uh, mechanisms to ensure that uh, you achieve a particular false alarm rate and uh, a particular uh, uh, detection rate in that system. 
so we found that if you have uh, if you determine a particular false alarm rate you could find the threshold and then you could uh, set that threshold in your scheme so you will have so we first start with the particular false alarm rate and from there we determine the threshold value You mentioned that the Oromobus vehicle uh, update their formula by using the over-the-air channel. Yes. So I'm curious about whether uh, when they conduct over-the-air formula update, they utilize uh, any authentication or formula signing method or not. Yeah. So I think um, they do utilize it. Mm -hmm. so, so at least I know that Tesla utilizes this over-the-air uh, uh, update mechanisms mm -hmm. and they do utilize uh, authentication while doing that. Any other questions? No? Okay, listen. I'll speak to you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you.